0: The following message is from Westway Christian Church in Scottsbluff, Nebraska. If you'd like to know more about us, go to westwaychurch.com. Thank you for listening. Well, good morning. If you have your Bible, I would love for you to open it to uh, Matthew chapter 1 and then Genesis chapter 38 are the two texts that we're going to be talking about. I'm John, and I'm one of the pastors here. At Westway Christian Church, and I'm really excited about this series. I'm excited about this season. I'm excited to hear what God has for us. And one of the things that we've been doing over the past several weeks is we've been talking about tools that, that are available to us to help us grow in our discipleship. And I can't, I can't encourage and stress enough the importance of using what God has given us, what God has made available to us to grow in our relationship with others and to grow in our relationship with God himself. So today we're gonna be utilizing that, that versions Bible app again, where we wanna share that because we've been been talking a lot about it, putting all the things into that. Um, But before we do, um, if you have any questions about the message today, and I imagine you might, I don't know if you have read through Genesis 38 yet. Um, It's an interesting chapter, to say the least. I had a friend of mine text me this morning and say, thanks for letting me know in advance that this is an R-rated text. Now I know what I'm going to talk to my kids about tonight. Um, So this is the Bible So I'm thankful that that we have this word. And if you have any questions about it, I would encourage you to text them to 308-252-3273. So we can talk about that on Tuesday when we do our Tuesday Q&A at 11.15 this week. So I I want you to go uh, real quickly. Um, They're going to put my iPad up on the screen here. Um, Down in the bottom, you'll see the Holy Bible on the bottom right. But then there's another little app that looks like um, what we think Jesus looks like, right? He's got the blue sash. So that fits perfectly. Um, this is actually YouVersion's Bible app for kids. So it's the same or a similar app put out by the same company, but it's for kids. So if I click on that, um, this is Bible stories all in here. So parents, I, I want to commend to you this tool that breaks down Bible stories. There's questions That get asked about each of the stories. So I really want to recommend. If you're a parent. To read the Bible with your kids. And read it in a way that they can easily understand. This is an excellent tool. But we're going to go back to the other YouVersion Bible app. And you can just click on more there. And events. And you'll see Westway here. In a second is going to pop up. And we're going to read that in a second. I was reminded earlier this week of of how we want to hear the Christmas story. We want to hear a Christmas story that talks about silent nights and angels singing on high and proclaiming the presence of the Messiah. But as Becky said earlier, the Bible, the story of Jesus doesn't begin that night in Bethlehem. God did not wake up that morning and decide to put into place his plan. It had, been, it had been schemed, to use that word, many, many, many generations before. Let's talk about Matthew 1, 1-17. You can follow along with us on the screen, or you can follow along in your Bible. This is a record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham, Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Abinadab. Abinadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother was Bathsheba, the son, the widow of Uriah. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam was the father of Abiha. Abiha was the father of Asa. Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat was the father of Jehoram. Jehoram was the father of Uzziah. Uzziah was the father of Jotham. Jotham was the father of Ahaz. Ahaz was the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh. Manasseh was the father of Ammon. Ammon was the father of Josiah. Josiah was the father of Jehoiachin and his brothers, born at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the Babylonian exile, Jehoiachin was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the father of Iabud. Ayod, I knew I was going to get one of those wrong. There it was. Was the father of Eliakim. Eliakim was the father of Azor. Azor was the father of Zadok. Zadok was the father of Akim. Akim was the father of Eliad. Eliad was the father of Eleazar. Eleazar was the father of Methan. Mathon was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Mary gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Messiah. All those generations listed above include 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the Babylonian exile, and 14 from the Babylonian exile to the Messiah. I don't know about you, but I think this is the worst possible way to begin a story. Isn't that the way we think? We open our Bible to the Gospel of Matthew, thinking we're going to get Jesus in the manger. And instead, we have a list of name after name after name. And I don't know what your Bible reading plans usually look like. But my hunch is they end somewhere in February, March, when you hit the books of Leviticus and Numbers. When you get to these lists of genealogies, to these lists of names, But here's reality. Each one of these people are important. Each one of these people are significant in the Christ story. We've talked about some of the phrases, the buzzwords of 2020. We've talked about flatten the curve. I know that one was a while ago. We've talked about we're all in this together. But I think my least favorite phrase that has come out of 2020, my least favorite word is the word Non-essential. Think about that for a moment. Who is non-essential? Who deems that someone is non-essential? Does that concept of non-essential, how does that, how does that compare to what Genesis 1 tells us? About being made in God's image that all humans were made in the image of God. How can we be made in God's image and be deemed non-essential? There is no one in this list that is non-essential. That's why we're going to spend time talking about just a few of these names over the next few weeks. They're not non-essential. They're not unimportant. They're key to the story. And when we read this list carefully, as I suggest over the next several weeks you do, you will see that it does not read like the greatest heroes of the Old Testament list. It's not that list. It's filled with people who pass their wives off as their sisters. It's got a murderer on it. It's got a man who had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Almost every king that's listed exhibited various pagan behaviors during his reign and yet this is the list this is the genealogy this is the way that God uses to bring the messiah into the world this is our list it's open to scrutiny we can go back and that's what we're going to do over the next couple weeks we can go back and we can read some of these stories These aren't just names where we're unsure of what they did or how they lived their lives. We can go back and we can read and we can research these names. One of the favorite television shows that Ann and I watch is called The Crown on Netflix. Are there any other Crown fans? Talks about Queen Elizabeth. Scott was back there. Oh, that was good. He actually did The Wave too. That was good. Um, The Crown is a semi-historical show about the Queen of England when she ascends the throne in the mid-1930s, and it just talks about the life and the history of England and the Queen during this time. The last season, or the, the season four, the most recent season, came out just a few weeks ago, and Anne and I have already binged watched it. In the seventh episode, something interesting kind of happened. Princess Margaret, who is the Queen's sister, is seeing a therapist. This is a little bit of backstory for what's going on. She's seeing a therapist, and the therapist mentions the name of two people that Margaret would know. She mentions the name the names Narissa and Catherine Bowes Lyon as being alive. It's just this conversation, and she says, "So these two people, Narissa and Catherine, they're alive. They had been the daughters of the brother of the Queen Mother." Well, this was news to Margaret because Margaret had heard these people were dead. So are they alive or are they dead? So what Margaret and the queen do is they they consult a book called called the Burke's Peerage, which sounds about as exciting as the first 17 verses in Matthew chapter one. They consult Burke's Peerage, which is a genealogical book. To see what happened to these two women. Were they alive? Were they dead? Well, according to the book, one of them had died in 1940 and the other one had died in 1961. So why was this person talking about them as if they were alive? So they did more research and they discovered that the girls had been institutionalized as imbeciles. That was the term they used. They had been institutionalized as imbeciles in 1941. They had three other female cousins who were also mentally disabled who had been completely institutionalized. They had been completely wiped clean from the genealogical record. And records indicated that no one from the family had ever paid them a visit. In fact, when Norissa died in 1986, her grave was marked merely with some plastic tags and a serial number. This was a relative of the queen. See, I thank God that we have a genealogy, that we have a list that Matthew has compiled for us that places Jesus firmly in the story of reality. We talked about this several years ago when we went through the book of Hebrews. We don't have a God who can't sympathize and empathize with us. We have a Savior who is like us, who is fully God, fully math, and or fully fully God, fully man. And I always say, I don't know how the math of that works. But he wasn't half man, half God. Jesus was fully God and fully man. So we don't have a God that, a God that can't identify with us, whose, whose genealogical record has been wiped clean. We have it set out before us. See, this list that many of us skip, that we're tempted to skip when we open the Gospel of Matthew, this list is evidence of God's promises in motion. This is Proof, this is demonstration that what God has said is going to happen is going to happen. Notice the list begins with Abraham. Luke's list begins with Adam. You can compare the two lists. This list begins with Abraham. Why Abraham? Because remember, if you remember your Genesis history in Genesis chapter 12, God goes to Abraham and says, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. Kings are going to come from your line. And we see this being acted out right here for us. This is a bold list. It's filled with saints and a lot of sinners. It's filled with scandalized and marginalized and unlikely people. And isn't that exactly how God works? Using using scandalized and unlikely and marginalized people. None of these people was insignificant. There were no cover ups. Maybe there was a little bit of embarrassment, maybe. But they're on the list. Open for all of us to see. And over the next few weeks, we're going to talk about just three names on the list. We're going to talk about three of the five women that are listed. And you should know that at this time in history, Jewish genealogies rarely included females. Because each of the people that are listed on here, they all had mothers. There's a lot of male names on here. I don't know if you heard that. But each of them had mothers. So why why were these females listed What was it about them that was so important? So we're going to talk about three. We're going to talk about Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth. Before we read Genesis chapter 38, I want you to know a few things. Number one, it's PG-13. I actually had a friend of mine send me a text this morning about an hour before I came this morning. And he said, hey, thanks for letting me read an R-rated story. Now I have something to talk to my kids about tonight, which is the right mindset. Parents, we should not we should not flee from what God's word has to say. And here's the second thing you need to know a little bit about what's happened just before Genesis 38. Jacob and his sons are living in the land that had been promised to Abraham. One of these sons was Joseph, and he had an amazing technicolor dream coat. I'm sure you have probably heard that story before. Joseph was special, and he knew it. And it seems like when you read through Genesis chapter 37 in particular, it seems like Joseph flaunts his special nature a little bit to his brothers. He had dreams in which his brothers would bow down to him. And he was bold enough to tell his brothers he had those dreams. And one day they got sick of all of this. And they decided to kill him. Maybe that's an overreaction. But they decided to kill their brother Joseph. And as they, as they talked about this. They made another decision to sell him to some Ishmaelite traders. And then later Joseph would be sold to Potiphar's house in Egypt. Let's read Genesis 38 together. About this time, this is right after the scene in which Joseph has been sold. About this time, Judah left home and moved to Adullam where he stayed with a man named Hera. There he saw a Canaanite woman, the daughter of Shua, and he married her. When he slept with her, she became pregnant and gave birth to a son And he named the boy Ur. Then she became pregnant again and gave birth to another son. She named him Onan. Then she gave birth, and when she gave birth to a third son, she named him Shelah. At the time of Shelah's birth, they were living at Kasib. In the course of time, Judah arranged for his firstborn son to marry a young woman named Tamar. But Ur was a wicked man in the Lord's sight. So the Lord took his life. Then Judah said to Ur's brother Onan, go and marry Tamar, as our law requires of the brother of a man who has died. You must produce an heir for your brother. But Onan was not willing to have a child who would not be his own heir. So whenever he had intercourse with his brother's wife, he spilled the semen on the ground. This prevented her from having a child who had belonged to his brother. But the Lord considered it evil for Onan to deny a child to his dead brother So the Lord took Onan's life too. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, go back to your parents' home and remain a widow until my son Shelah is old enough to marry you. But Judah didn't really intend to do this because he was afraid Shelah would also die like his two brothers. So Tamar went back to live in her father's home. Some years later, Judah's wife died. After the time of mourning was over, Judah and his friend Hira, the Adolamite, went up to Timnah to supervise the shearing of his sheep. Someone told Tamar, look, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. Tamar was aware that Shelah had grown up, but no arrangements had been made for her to come and marry him. This is like the days of our lives, isn't it? I hope you got a picture of that from the, from the bumper. That, that our creative arts team made. It's just like a soap opera. Let's keep going. So she changed out of her widow's clothing and covered herself with a veil to disguise herself. Then she sat beside the road at the, vent, at the entrance to the village of Ename which is on the road to Timna. Judah noticed her and thought she was a prostitute since she had covered her face. So he stopped and propositioned her. Let me have sex with you, he said, not realizing that she was his own daughter-in-law. How much will you pay me to have sex with me? Tamar asked. I'll send you a young goat from my flock, Judah promised. But what will you give me to guarantee you will send the goat, she asked. What kind of guarantee do you want, he replied. She answered, leave me your identification seal and its cord and the walking stick you're carrying So Judah gave them to her. Then he had intercourse with her and she became pregnant. Afterwards, she went back home, took off her veil, and put on her widow's clothing as usual. Later, Judah asked his friend Hiram the Adelamite to take the young goat to the woman and to pick up the things he had given her as his guarantee. But Hiram couldn't find her, so he asked the men who lived there. Where can I find the shrine prostitute who is sitting beside the road at the entrance to name? We've never had a shrine prostitute here, they replied. So Hero returned to Judah and told him, I couldn't find her anywhere. And the men of the village claim they've never had a shrine prostitute there. Then let her keep the things I gave her, Judah said. I sent the young goat as we agreed, but you couldn't find her. We'd be the laughingstock of the village if we went back again to look for her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has acted like a prostitute. And now because of this, she's pregnant. Bring her out and let her be burned, Judah demanded. But as they were taking her out to kill her, she sent this message to her father-in-law. The man who owns these things made me pregnant. Look closely. Whose seal and cord and walking stick are these? Judah recognized them immediately and said, she's more righteous than I am because I didn't arrange for her to marry my son, Shayla, and Judah never slept with Tamar again. When the time came for Tamar to give birth, it was discovered she was carrying twins. While she was in labor, one of the babies reached out his hand. The midwife grabbed it and tied a scarlet string around the child's wrist, announcing, this one came out first. But when he pulled back his hand and out came, but then he pulled back his hand and out came his brother. What? The midwife exclaimed. How did you break out first? So he was named Perez, which is what Perez means, break out. Then the baby with the scarlet string on his wrist was born and he was named Zira. I want to point something out to you You can leave it on the Bible app screen just for one more second. I know I went to a different screen, but at the very bottom, if you're trying to figure out like how Genesis 38 fits into the story of the book of Genesis, that is not today's sermon. We're talking about tomorrow. We're talking about the genealogy. But one of the things that I found just this week at the very bottom on your YouVersion app, it says additional resources. There's a podcast called On Being Like Joseph and Not Being Like Judah. It talks about chapters 37 to 39. I highly recommend that you dig in and you listen to that. It's 45 minutes long. It goes very quickly and digs so deeply into this story that it would be worth your time to find out. Well, here's the deal. As a Christian, you need to know why this story is in the Bible. You need to know why this story is in the Bible. One of the things that they teach us in Bible college are two terms, the terms of descriptive and prescriptive. The word descriptive does just what you think it would. It describes what happens. Does that make sense? So I'm gonna read this story. It's gonna tell me what happens. The other word is prescriptive. That's where this is telling me to do something. So I'll ask this question. question, Which of these two things do you think this story is? Do you think it's descriptive or prescriptive? You guys don't want to get it wrong, do you? It's descriptive. This is telling us what happened. This This is not giving you advice. So I would encourage you to not read this particular text as though it were giving you advice. On what to do, should you find yourself in a similar situation? It's not one of those texts. But here's the deal. As Christians, we believe that God's word or the Bible, scripture, is God breathed. And it's useful for teaching and correcting and rebuking and training in righteousness. That means all of it is God breathed. See, as Christians, we don't get to pick and choose and decide, well, this this story doesn't have anything for me, so I don't have to read it, right? Like kind of like we do with genealogy sometimes. There's something for us in this text. And the way that we frequently talk about God's word here is we, we talk about it like it's a mirror. And I didn't make that up. That comes from the Bible itself. God's word reflects back on us the truth of who God is. And it reflects back on us the truth of who we are as people. So as I was reading through this story, I felt that would be helpful. Like, what does this story teach us about God? If this is descriptive, what can we learn about God from this story? I just found a few things. One of the questions back in that YouVersion app for you to talk about in your small groups or as in your family or with your friends. One of the questions is how do we see God at work? Well, I just found three things. You probably will find more. Here's the first thing that I think we can learn about God from this story is he's actively engaged in the story of his people. In the lives of of significant people, which is every one of us, God is actively engaged in the life of his people. Actively engaged. He's not just sitting back watching things happen. He's actively engaged. See, God's also just. And he cares about the work of evil people. I don't know if you picked up on it. But Ur, Judah's first son, was an evil man. Now, we don't know fully what that means. But what did God do? He judged him. He killed him because he was an evil person. He killed him. And then his second son, Onan, who did not fulfill the oath that he was supposed to do to his brother. He did an evil act. And the justice of God demands death. God is just, and he cares about the work of evil people. When he sees evil people doing evil things, he's just, and he's going to take action against that. And here's the third thing that I found in this text. And again, you'll find more. God has a plan that will not be thwarted by the sinfulness of mankind. See, just because Ur was evil, that didn't get in the way of God's plan. Just because Onan was evil, that didn't get in the way of God's plan. Just because Judah was evil and didn't send his son Shelah to Tamar, that doesn't get in the way of God's plan. We can't thwart God's plan no matter how much we try. Intentional or otherwise. God's plan is not going to be thwarted. You're not going to get in the way of God's plan. You might miss out on the blessing of not fulfilling God's plan. But God's plan is not going to be thwarted. And isn't that good news for us? That God's plan is not thwarted. That God can say, Abraham, you are going to be the father of many nations. And this is how it's all going to pan out. This is God's plan at work. Well, what can we learn about us? Like if if when I read this text in Genesis 38 and I I hold it up like it's a mirror, what, what does it accurately reflect back about mankind? And I have a whole bunch of them here. This was easy to do. Like Judah. We like to run from our problems. Did you notice that that's how this chapter begins? They send Joseph off. With the, with the Ishmaelites and with the Midianites. And then they trade him to Egypt. And what's the first thing that Judah does? He leaves home. I'm out of here. I've caused this problem. I've created that problem. So I'm going to run. I'm out of here. Here's the second thing. Like Judah, we don't prefer God's will in our lives. We prefer our own will. Did you notice that Judah married a Canaanite woman? They were supposed to marry within their own kind, within their own tribe. Hebrews were supposed to marry Hebrews. They weren't supposed to marry outside. And Judah doesn't want that. Judah wants his own way. Like Tamar, this is again, we're reflecting back. Like Tamar, we find ourselves often at the mercy of systems and structures that are arrayed against us. You know that Tamar didn't have a choice here, right? When it says that Judah arranged Ur to marry Tamar, Tamar did not have a choice. Tamar could not wake up on the day of their wedding and say, man, Ur is an evil person. I am not going to marry you. It's not the way it worked. So she was at the the mercy of, of a system and a structure that she couldn't get out of. And then you see that she stayed in that system. Er's dead. Here's Onan. He's going to be just as terrible. So she's at the mercy of this. I think like Tamar, we often find ourselves in the, caught up in the wickedness of other people. Has that ever been your story? Where someone else has done something and you've had to pay the price for it. You've had to pay the penalty for it. Do you see how this this text reflects back reality to us? This is our story as well. Like Onan, we often demonstrate a what's in it for me mentality and we don't fulfill our obligations to others around us. How many times have you had an obligation and you haven't fulfilled it? Because your will, your desire was more important than your obligation. And when you neglect other people, don't miss this. When we don't fulfill our obligation to other people, it offends God. Did you notice that God killed Onan too? Like Judah... We often live in the fear of the unknown and the what if, so we keep from others what is rightfully theirs. Do you think Judah was a little concerned about giving his third and final son to Tamar? Do you think that played into this story at all? Do you think Judah ever once thought maybe Tamar's the problem here? I've given her two of my three sons, each of them have died. There's no way. I'm giving her son number three. Like Judah, we often bury our grief in our work. I wonder if that's true of you. Do you bury your grief, your loss in your work? Like Tamar, we find ourselves in what feels like endless waiting, so we take matters into our own hands. We don't want to wait for God to fulfill what what he is supposed to do. So I'm going to take this into my own hands. I'm going to do my own thing. Like Judah. Some of us, maybe many of us, use sex to numb our pain. Notice that Tamar knew that she just had to put a veil on to seduce Judah. What did she know about Judah? Like Judah, we're often blind to the real identity of others made in God's image. And this blindness allows us to take advantage of them. Do you see that in this story? Judah's on the way to Timnah. He sees a woman. He doesn't see her as made in God's image, right? He sees her as non-essential. Just a prostitute. So I'll take advantage of her. Like Tamar, we manipulate and take advantage of the situations of circumstances of others to get what we want. Does that ring true for any of you? Does that ring true for anyone you know? Like Judah and his father before him. And this is where you should go back and read the book of Genesis. Genesis. This story that we're spending our time on today is just repeat of everything that's happened prior to Genesis 38. Like Judah and his father before him, we often give up our God-given identity for lesser things. See, those three pieces, those three things that he gave to the prostitute, that was part of his identity. That was who he was. His father, Isaac, by the way, gave up his role as the firstborn for what? Do any of you know? A bowl of soup. That's how how important his identity was. He gave it up for a bowl of soup. And I think like Judah, we are quick to judge the sins of others. I think if we just read this, story, and we ask the question, what does this have for us? I think we're asking the wrong question. What doesn't this story have for us? How is this not reflecting back the realities of who God is and who we are? So what do we do with this? I said a few minutes ago, Christians, you need to know why this is in the story. You need to know why this is in the Bible. You need to know why Tamar's name is in the list of genealogies. Well, I think like Judah, we each have an opportunity to acknowledge our sin, to admit it and make life change. That's what he says at the end of the story. She's more righteous than I am. Because I didn't arrange for her to marry my son, Shayla. Now, maybe you don't think that's a repentant act. I would encourage you to read the rest of the book of Genesis and see how Judah behaves after this moment and compare how he behaves before this moment. See, each one of us has the opportunity when confronted with our sin to acknowledge it, to admit it, and make life change the word that we use for that as Christians is repent. We repent of our sin. We cast ourselves at the feet of Jesus and he forgives our sin. And then we walk in his mercy. I think one of the things that we might ask ourselves as we read through this story is, is this a celebration of Tamar? John, are you, are you celebrating Tamar's sin? And as we talked about this in our staff meeting last week, the answer to the question is no. We're celebrating the reality that God works in, through, and despite her sin. See, that's what we celebrate. We don't lift Tamar up as this perfect person, as this perfect model. Because stories like this reveal to us the sinfulness of mankind and they demonstrate the mercy and the goodness of God. Stories like this demonstrate that God is sovereign over our own stupidity. How many awful, terrible decisions and choices have you made in your life? And God is sovereign despite them. He works through them despite that. I want you to imagine the scandal of Matthew's list in Matthew chapter one. Pretend for a moment that Westway was compiling a list of pastors who've served over the last 70 years. Pretend for a moment that one of those pastors lived the life of Judah. Or David, and I know he was a man after God's own heart. You should read the story. Or Solomon and his 700 wives. I wonder, would you put Solomon on your list of pastors at Westway Christian Church? Without an asterisk? Without it being underlined? See footnote at bottom of page? See, Matthew presents his list in an unadulterated fashion to us. It is what it is. Without apology, without embarrassment, and without shame. Why? He does this because the scandalous grace that's offered by the baby in the manger deals with scandalous sin. Notice Jesus' name is at the end of the list, right? Right? See, Jesus at the end covers every single name up above it. And it covers every name after his. And this is shocking to us. These stories shock us (coughs) because scandalous grace is scandalous. It's unmerited and it's unwarranted and it's undeserved. And what we want to do is we want to judge these people. You know, over the past few years it's it's interesting how God has worked over the past few years at Westway Christian Church in our community we've increased our ministry not just our church but other churches in the area we've increased our ministry to people in our community who are in the midst of unplanned pregnancy whether it's options pregnancy center or whether it's embrace grace and over the past several years we've had we've had people come up and stand before our body and talk about those ministries. People who were in those similar situations and now they're, now they're leading those ministries, they're running those ministries. And earlier this year, we did that on Sanctity of Human Life Sunday back in January. We had people who had been in the midst of unplanned pregnancy earlier than their life share about what was happening now. Share about their ministries. And there were murmurings within our body. We heard about this afterwards of like, are we, are we celebrating their sin? Why would we allow them to be on the stage? Why would we celebrate them? I have a question. Have you read the Bible? See, God's scandalous grace forgives scandalous sins. And maybe you think your sin isn't scandalous. You're wrong. It's an offense to God. It sent Jesus to the cross. And see, we're talking about this story. We're talking about these women. Because this is the best part of the Christmas story. The Christmas story is not just about a silent night in Bethlehem. That's not what the Christmas story is just about. That was a really good night. It was an awesome night. I'm thankful for that night. But the sum of the Christmas story was about Jesus coming to deal with our sin. And tomorrow reminds us that the baby in a major came to to deliver shockingly awful sinners from their just punishment. See, we are er. I don't know who you thought you were as I was reading that story in Genesis 38. I don't know who you thought you were. But we are. We're, er. we're Onan. We're the people who are supposed to be obedient to God and we choose our own way. See, Tamar reminds us that no one is insignificant. Not the woman who is married to a wickedly evil man, Two of them, in fact. Not, Not the prostitute in Jericho, which is who we're going to talk about next week from the book of Joshua. And not a Midianite named Ruth. See, none of those people are insignificant. You're not insignificant. And whether someone in a governmental role gives you the title of non-essential or whether you are the building manager at Westway Christian Church. See, you are so significant that Jesus would come to earth, would be born in a manger, would be scandalously murdered so that you could appear on another genealogical list. We learn about that in the book of Revelation. It's called the Lamb's Book of Life. And in that list, in that book, it's filled with the names of brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. Also, without apology, there's a justification, but it's not us, it's in Christ's blood. And see, despite Tamar's scandalous initiative, despite what Tamar does to get her own way, God chose the offspring of that union to bring about the line of David. See, without Tamar, you don't have Perez. And if you read through this genealogy, just a few names down, you're gonna get to the name of David. And if you don't have Tamar, you don't have David. This is God's plan. This is the Christmas that we celebrate the scandalous mercy of God given to us so that we can look to others. We can proclaim the truth of the gospel to people that the rest of the world says are non-essential and unimportant and are notorious and scandalous sinners. That's the message of Christmas. That's the hope of the gospel for us. So as we go through the next few weeks and you're at home going through the next few weeks and you put up your Christmas tree, I know some of you crazy people have already done it. Don't lose sight that the gospel of Jesus Christ is about grace. Grace that covers sin. My sin and your sin. And that is a Christmas worth celebrating. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your son, Jesus. We're thankful for the grace that he offers us. We're thankful for the mercy that comes through him. We're thankful that you accept scandalous sinners. You forgive sand scandalous sinners. You offer mercy to scandalous sinners like Paul says, I am the chief. I'm the chief of sinners. But we've also received a gift and never let us forget that. It's in your son's name that we pray.